0: Welcome to the Labor Radio Podcast Network's live 2020 election coverage, focusing on what organized labor is doing throughout the United States, to ensure all votes are counted and labor's voice is heard. Reporting will be based on contributions from our national network of members. Views expressed do not represent official positions of the network. The Labor Radio Podcast Network has over 70 labor-focused shows in four countries and serves as a one-stop shop for audiences looking for labor content and as a resource for labor broadcasters, podcasters, and content producers. You can follow the conversation with the hashtag LaborRadioPod, where we are broadcasting working people's voices 24 hours a day.
1: We have to meet the moment, use our voice. I vote to make the right for choice To make change to policies Equal rights for you and me If the first woman turned it upside down All of us women can turn it around A hundred years of her story Women marching for dignity here at last seize the moment can't let it pass me for you and you for me we'll march together till we all are free in solidarity for all the world to see through our votes they'll hear our roar. numbers too big to ignore we've been held down for too long we've got the right we are got
2: All right. Now that's the way to kick off some coverage
3: right there. Absolutely. Thanks for hanging with us, folks. A little technical glitch there, but uh Evan was right on it. Welcome, welcome. This is election day. This is the real thing. Uh this is we're not this is not dress rehearsal, right? This is it, right, Harold?
2: You are absolutely correct. That's why I tried to put on a jacket just like I you, know. so I looked official.
4: Yeah, appreciate Yeah, me Jack. too all right everybody's best looking flannel. good that's <laughs> what you right. call your uh,
2: check jacket there right <laughs> yeah.
3: thank you sweetie. all right so uh just uh, uh we're going to be here, folks, uh, until uh, whenever. We had 5 p.m. till whenever, so we're at some point we're probably going to have to hand it off to the West Coast. But uh, you are watching and listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Network live uh, election day coverage. Uh, we are all over the country. This is uh, just some of the more than 70 members of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. And so with that, uh, let me introduce who uh, we have. And then we've got some great guests lined up uh, for the next couple of hours. So I'm just going to do my usual. Actually, I'm going to go the other way around on my screen. And that, uh, that takes me to, uh, to you, Patrick, to uh, introduce
4: yourself. Oh, good evening, everyone. This is Patrick Dixon from the Labor History Today podcast, and I'm coming from Arlington, Virginia, today.
3: All right, Patrick, and uh, then to you, Evan, our producer.
0: Hello, Evan Pap, Empathy Media Lab, and uh, in Maryland, and very excited to be with y'all. All right, Alan.
5: Hey, everybody. Alan Weirdak here from the Labor History Today podcast, um, also from the Cool Things in the Meany Archives podcast uh, as well, coming to you from Alney, Maryland.
3: All right. And uh, Alan, just a reminder to update your name with your show, if you would. Thank you. Harold.
2: Hello, working people. <clears throat> Harold Phillips, uh, co-host of the Working to Live in Southwest Wall Southwest Washington podcast, and uh, looking forward to a big night with labor broadcasters and podcasters from around the country.
3: And Harold, I think you had a little, do you have a little something, something to share with us? Did did that that work out?
2: You know, it didn't work out, but uh, let me tell you about it because it would have been fantastic with all (laughs) the production values and music, and it just would have been glorious, but it didn't come together. So... um, here in the Pacific Northwest, when we have a celebratory occasion or when we have a long night ahead of us, what do we do? We go out and get some of our locally made uh, beer.
3: I like it. So,
2: I went into downtown Vancouver, Washington, where I live, and filled up my growlers with a couple of local brews. And along the way, I passed the Clark County Elections Office, where the line is literally sp- around the block of people coming in to vote because Washington has same day voter registration and Washingtonians are taking advantage of that. I saw people with their kids. I saw people very happy to be there. And oddly enough, I even saw a drop box where poll workers were handing out I voted stickers. You know, we are 100% mail-in vote state, so we're kind of used not to getting those I Voted stickers. I almost wanted to stop and see if I could get one, but uh, we had the deadline. I had to get on camera.
3: Good so anyways. Here, and uh, good to see. Uh, I wish I was in the other Washington right now. I've just got my uh, tea here, but uh, good, good for you. All right, Harold. Uh, Gene, over to, uh, to Dallas. This is Gene Lance. Our
6: program is the Workers Beat on KNON Radio at 9 o'clock Central Time
3: every Saturday. We're in Dallas, Texas. Beautiful Dallas, Texas. And and, uh, rocking the Texas hat. I love it. Very nice. Uh, Jeremy.
5: Uh, Yeah. Jeremy Waugh, host of the Break Time Breakdown uh, out of Louisville, Kentucky. Affiliated with the uh, Sheet Metal Workers Local 110. And... Under the Smart International Sheet Metal Air Rail and Transportation Workers, and uh, like uh, like Harold, I'm not from the Pacific Northwest. I'm right here in the uh, in uh, good old Kentucky, but I too have some local brew ready to go, um, and I also got a Kentucky favorite just in case.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
5: so I'm I'm prepared for whatever happens tonight.
3: Jeremy has really uh, prepared for the evening. Uh, I believe that that Jeremy's having a little uh, uh, PTSD from 2016 and is all prepared for it this time. So good for you. In fact, well, uh, Evan is going to lead us through a little exercise in that later on. So I'll have to uh, go get hold of something a little stiffer than my tea at that (laughs) point as well. Um, Before we go on, just to those of you watching, uh, Alan is going to be monitoring that chat. So feel free to share your comments or thoughts and then Alan will, will bring that into the conversation uh, here as, uh, as well. Uh, so we want to definitely want to hear from you. Also, uh, please uh, share that around to all of your networks uh, as well so that we can reach the broadest possible audience. So with with that, um we're we're working on, on lining up um a couple of folks that are gonna be joining us uh momentarily. Um and I guess Gene, I'm wondering what what's going on uh in in Texas with turnout. I know I was talking to uh Charlie Fleming in Georgia a little bit earlier, and interestingly he was saying that turnout, physical turnout was was not Uh, as high as they had expected, uh, possibly because so many people have already voted. I'm wondering, what are you seeing in in Texas?
6: Over 10 million Texans have already voted. And of them, uh, 561,000 union families, people associated with union families, have voted. We're at 61.7% of union families that have voted. That's that's actually before uh, Election Day. And uh, that made us fourth in the nation, I think, in terms of percentage turnout for union workers, the, or union families. The union workers have been texting like crazy and uh, uh, doing literature drops and doing phone banking madly. And uh, this has all been headed up by the State Federation in Austin, and they've coordinated the efforts of the Central Labor Councils, such as our Central Labor Council here in Dallas, And uh, we're pretty proud of ourselves.
3: Yeah, it's been, I know, uh, I mean, you guys, like me, I must have gotten 20 or 25 uh, emails and texts today uh, from all kinds of folks, you know, uh, official, you know, in the labor movement. uh, And I've I've never seen anything like that before. Did you guys get that as well?
6: Yeah, absolutely. All, All the time, yeah. The
2: phone is a constant source of information.
6: Okay, I'm also in the United Auto Workers, and we've been getting uh,
3: four-color uh, mailings almost every day, pretty much through the whole election period. Really? Now that's something I saw almost none of this time, at least here in D.C. Uh, no, no mailings. Uh, at all, it's almost uh, a lost art. At least, uh, and in the last couple of elections, uh, it may just be a different kind of situation. They really
6: hit the mail and also the videos. Uh, the auto workers, so from Detroit, it wasn't from. It wasn't produced locally. This came from Detroit.
3: Ah, okay, all right. Uh, Jeremy, what about with uh, with smart? What, did you, what were you seeing with with the uh, sheet metal and uh, rail transportation workers?
5: Uh, we've been super active. Uh, I, I've been a part of it. So p- one of the things for me being in Kentucky, I like, I know I, I'm realistic. I understand we're not going to, we're not going to flip uh, Kentucky for Joe. So I wanted to be able to, uh, help out wherever I could with the swing state. So, uh, our, our international had set up, we were doing phone banking and text banking, uh, pretty regular for, the better part of a month, maybe a little over a month. Um, so straight through the month of October, uh, we were just—it was just nonstop. We were hitting. Um, you know, we were working directly with the Biden Harris campaign, and you know, helping helping. Whether we were we were uh, um, contacting our members uh, in particular sheet metal workers, or working with the lists that the uh, Biden Harris campaign had had compiled. Um, but it was it was pretty we we were very very active in this campaign and uh just getting back to the mailing here in Kentucky, we do have a a senator that 's up for reelection i would I would love to crack open this bottle to celebrate him going down, but you know again that 's a tall order
3: who, who are we talking about now
2: uh that 's uh moscow mitch yeah moscow. Uh, that guy, I think I've heard of that guy. He uh, he has some position or something, right? Yeah here's,
3: yeah. here's the deal, though. Even if he hangs on, uh, from what I'm hearing, it is very likely he's going to be in the minority.
5: Well, so I'll take great pleasure in watching that uh, because I know how much that's going to eat him up. But I, man, I, I I was doing some research earlier, just based off some of the numbers that were coming in, and and just to touch on what what, what kind of sparked this, we were getting mailers from, uh, from the McGrath campaign just about every day for man, months, for months, like beyond, like even before October, we were getting mail every single day. We'd get something from the McGrath campaign every single day. Uh, so she, I mean, she's been working, she's been working. And I was just looking at the numbers, uh, from previous elections. And I saw when, when Mitch was running on, Outside of a presidential election, on an off year, uh, turnout wasn't real high. It never is, right? It's always lower than in a presidential campaign. And uh, he won pretty handily. But when he ran, he ran in 2008 when Obama first ran. and We had a real strong Democrat candidate. And turnout was really good in Kentucky. It was almost 65% turnout. And Mitch only won by 5% when the, the president, uh, John McCain, carried the state by over 16%. So just looking at some of the numbers and seeing what, what type of turnout we have going on right now, it's it's almost neck and neck between Republicans and Democrats that have voted early in the state of Kentucky. So the fact that we're keeping it that close just in the turnout, you know, and not to say that every Republican's voting Mitch and every Democrat's going to vote for Amy, but it's, you know, it's it's... I'm I'm interested now. It's got me way more interested in, in a little less, um, you know, I was, I was kind of writing it off pretty early, but now that I'm kind of analyzing what's going on and the turnout, they're like, they're expecting 70%, pushing 70% turnout here in Kentucky, which is huge. Uh, I, I mean, that changes things. That's the, that's the, uh, that's the, uh, the outlier this year, I think, you know, uh, more so than the, than the polls of 2016. I think this year it's the, the massive turnout like you can't you can't really predict how this is going to go really you know what i mean uh because the motto is whenever there's a high voter turnout it usually favors a democrat well we'll see for
2: sure well i think that's exactly right jeremy because that is the story of 2016 everybody likes to talk about how the polls got it wrong but the other part that no one seems to remember is that turnout was really depressed and when turnout is up you get to see some good things happening. That is one of the things that labor is really good at doing is getting out that vote, mobilizing the members, getting the word out. So it's not surprising to me that we've seen record turnout, not just there in Kentucky, but really all across the country. I was just seeing that Miami-Dade County in Florida is going to have an all time record this year, um, something upwards of 90 million votes it's kind of astounding but it shows how motivated people are and I think labor has played a part in that.
3: Yeah no I think so and I mean that it's going to be real interesting and we'll and we'll look to get uh, some analysis uh, maybe even as soon as tomorrow uh, but certainly in the days and weeks ahead uh, both as a network and I think as individual shows to really take a look and see what role labor played because this is, you know, one of the things over the years is that, you know, our folks are registered at higher levels, they vote at higher levels than the general population. And, you know, and, you know, frankly, we got to, you know, admit that, you know, in 16, a lot of our folks, you know, voted for Donald Trump, you know, and so, you know, that that helped to put him in the White House. And that that's something, frankly, that, you know, led to quite a bit of soul searching and there's a lot of reasons for that. So, you know, the, just the fact that our folks are registered to vote doesn't necessarily tell you how they're, how they're going to vote, right? So, in fact, you're imagine just thinking about, uh, uh, you know, that conversation that you've had in your local about that.
6: Uh, in Florida, as we were just discussing, they are the second highest in turnout for uh, union families with 65%.
3: 65, 65%, and that's, that's pretty significant, right?
6: Well, you, uh, the, the highest is Montana. I think they got in the 70s. But uh, Florida was second highest for uh, union family turnout, just in the figures I got from the AFL-CIO today.
3: Really? That's interesting. I, w- I would not have, uh, you know, Florida is not generally considered, you know, a really high, you know, obviously, usually it's the uh, Northeast states. That are are uh, denser, uh, although it's probably changing, right? That's probably changing.
5: Well, you you start looking in some of the um, some of the southern states that have been getting beaten up for years with right to work and prevailing wage, lack of prevailing wage and stuff like that, and it's it's more incentive, you know, when when these when the working class in the uh, in some of these uh, uh, lower income areas start really uh getting pissed off enough you know uh and they start coming out and seeing like well this is where i got i've done this this didn't work this didn't work this didn't work i guess i need to to get active politically and vote and and whatever so so i mean you never know what's going to be the the breaking point for for some folks but i mean it's the the groundswell we talked about yesterday the groundswell is is definitely bigger than it's been in the past
3: well i mean one of the things that <laughs> that i you know about trump was that trump a lot of the stuff that he talked about let's, let's talk about trade for a second right also stuff he talks about on trade these are all our talking points these are all the things and the fact that he didn't actually deliver on them but but he talked about it the way that we've been talking about it for 40 years and a yeah, lot he was inter- speaking
5: him. the language, yeah.
3: Yes, he was. Yes, he, he was. Did. I mean, you know, it's, it's been frustrating that people seem to buy this when he doesn't actually, you know, he actually hasn't saved jobs. He's been cozying up to the people who are sending jobs abroad. But, you know, people seem to want to believe.
5: He sends his own work abroad. I mean, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? He, he exploits his own workers on his own projects. Like, he's, he's, he's a walking contradiction. But... He was, he was saying the right words. You know, he was the abusive boyfriend that that said the right words and got you to believe like, okay, it's going to be good. This, this time will be better. This guy's telling me this. And next thing, you know, uh, he he's just doing the same thing. And now he's been, now he's had to spend the whole time that he's, he's beating us up. He's gaslighting us at the same time, making us believe that it's not him. Like he's still, he's fighting so hard for us. If I'm in a bad way, it's because he's just he's he's just trying so hard but he can't he just can't make it happen even though he's the one that's that's doing it you know what i mean mm-hmm. um, and, and
2: he the he, guy who know. says how come you didn't do anything you were right there yeah
5: and yeah
3: frankly, yeah. he's
2: not doing anything he's right there
3: yeah. <laughs> Evan, i think you have a comment and also i'm thinking that there's um there's a video that we were going to show that i think is directly related to this but go ahead evan
0: yeah, Jeremy. I guess the question I have is, you know, when you have a third of the nation that has completely bought into, the the con, you know, that he's given confidence to these people who have lost their place, they're losing their, their class position, and they're easily, convinced to, be to see other people scapegoated, the most marginalized, uh, the undocumented, the, you know, the the poor African American, and and things like that and I guess how are we going to reintegrate a lot of these folks who have gone down into this near cult-like worship of this man and I, I'm sure this is going to be a question that we're going to have to deal with uh, for for a generation um, but that, that's something that I'm really interested in and also what's the reconciliation because we can't survive as a nation this balkanized
6: well yeah, you we know try to get somebody from the machinist union in because uh, they have a whole series of videos that they made about Trump's
0: failures to save American jobs. It's almost it's it's gonna be hard though, just using facts, right? <laughs> we're beyond facts, so we, we have to get to the point where we're we're bringing them in, bringing in these people who've been led led astray, and and you know some are gonna be gone forever, and unfortunately there there's no redemption for some people, but there we're still gonna to figure out how to reintegrate. A lot of these folks you know you, well you can't teach not to steal your
5: your uh, podcast name evan but you can't teach empathy right that's just something that's got to come from inside and I, I think the i think our best hope is to is to lead the way and when when we start lifting all, you know the whole uh, a rising tide lifts all ships once we start lifting all the ships and people start seeing their their situation get better and, and linking it to, you know, the, the people in charge, you know, because it, maybe we get the, the, the fight for 15 happens across the country, and, and that's just a step, just one step. But once people start, their, their lives start getting better, regard, their own intentions be damned, they, that might be the thing that opens them up and says, you know, well, hell, maybe this is good. Like, I'm doing better now. I really am doing better. Instead of viewing my neighbor uh, trying to figure out a way to make them worse than me. You know, that race to the bottom, mm-hmm, you, you, mm-hmm. you trick them or, or force them into a, a race up the mountain. I, let, I, I think- in,
3: uh, let me bring in our guest uh, Harold Meyerson. Yeah. He's an editor at large at the American Prospect. Uh, Harold, uh, these are all folks who have various labor radio shows or labor podcasts. Um, so we're we're very happy to have you on. And and uh, we are just talking about how, uh, uh Donald Trump has managed to uh convince a whole lot of union members uh what a friend of the working class he is uh something which I believe you have written about so <laughs> <laughs> in, Well enlighten us. Like, to
7: to a certain extent he has and and to a, a certain extent since labor union members are people first uh a, a lot of his appeal is in some ways non-economic uh uh, you know, I mean, in many ways, uh, one of the defining events of uh, of, of modernity was when uh, the working classes of Europe, which had pledged solidarity to one another, nonetheless sided with their nations and went to war against each other in 1914, uh, and that shows the resilience of a kind of uh, uh, us versus them identity politics.
1: Mm-hmm. And
7: I think that has been Trump's primary appeal to many of his supporters, some of whom are union members. Um, And, uh, you know, that's the sort of thing which uh, unions have worked to uh, combat and educate and oppose. But, uh, uh, you know, it's a continual struggle.
3: You uh, you sent me your your latest piece today with your predictions. You, I, I need you to share this with the rest of our of our folks here. Uh, I, you know, your, your lips to God's ears, but you you you're you're throwing up some pretty impressive numbers.
7: Yeah, well, I'm I'm, I'm perhaps insanely optimistic. Uh, <laughs> I I think the uh, over time the historic narrative here is that the Republican Party pre-Trump and during Trump has basically uh, had a a electoral strategy that was a a Southern strategy, a Sunbelt strategy. Mm -hmm. And the Sunbelt and the South are not, uh, you know, uh, that closely, they they do not closely resemble uh, the South of 1968 when Nixon invoked that strategy or 1980 when Ronald Reagan profited by it. It's much more racially diverse. Uh, it has a higher percentage of college-educated voters. Uh, and uh, it, we're, we're beginning to see real changes there. I think uh, it's as likely as not that Trump will uh, lose Georgia. And what I'm particularly fascinated by is Texas, uh, mm-hmm. which is a state where uh, the early vote total before any other state surpassed the total vote total in 2016. Uh, that mainly is coming in from metropolitan areas, from cities that are heavily Democratic, uh, and from suburbs that are increasingly Democratic. You know, if, if if the Republicans lose Texas, not to mention Florida, it's game over. Right. And it's not just game over for Trump, uh, because the Republicans have been relying on this strategy, which there's a kind of baseline of white supremacy, which is, you know, not usually broadcast loudly, though it's been broadcast very loudly by Donald Trump during his presidency and during his campaign in 2016 and since then and even before that. Um, You know, uh, I don't think uh, a party whose chief appeal is preserve America for the whites uh, is going to have the same kind of appeal in the Sun Belt that it has historically had in the past.
3: So let me open it up to some of my colleagues here. I have a ton more questions, but I'm going to uh, to yield to them. I forgot to ask for a show of hands, but uh, actually, uh, Gene, uh, he was just uh, referencing your state uh, comment or, or question. You can you can tell Gene because he's got the uh, the hat.
7: <laughs> I can see. I can see. He looks like a Texan.
3: He does.
6: Well, no we've done we've done we've done done progressively. We're having a sound issue with uh, Gene there. In Texas for the last one. But we can't predict anything because we've never done an election in a pandemic. So we don't really, we don't even know if all the early voters were Democrats. Although that's what the pundits keep telling us. But nobody in the labor movement here in Texas is taking anything for granted. We're just continuing to work right down to the wire.
3: Good. Uh, and while we're in the Texas thing, uh, uh, Harold, I'd love to get your take on this. I think just you know, I mean, in in, in it's hard to rank all of these, but this brazen attempt to disqualify what 126,000 votes can can just break that down. And and I mean, this is this is you know a broad daylight robbery, right?
7: Well, it was so broad daylight that the uh, state supreme court, which <laughs> is entirely Republican, right? Uh, dismissed it, and then it went to a Republican federal judge who also dismissed it. Uh, I, you know, th- this this gives one hope that Republican judges have a minimal, have at least a minimal standard of not being outrageously both illegal, ridiculous, immoral, etc. Uh, so let us hope that that minimum standard uh, uh, continues. But, but it, it, it's a mark of, uh, you know, the electoral desperation of the Republican Party which, for years since Goldwater, has been a party that was opposed to minority rights, and as it, it's as it's become a minority numerically itself, it's now also a party opposed to majority rule. That doesn't that doesn't leave much for a governing doctrine.
3: Uh, let me ask you, and I'm sure other folks are going to want to jump in too. But you know, uh, obviously, labor's been pushing hard for Joe Biden. Um, what's, what, you know, you've been around for a minute, what's, what's your, I mean, what is, is uh, President Biden going to be the best thing since sliced bread for uh, the, you know, the working class in America?
7: Well, you know, uh, if we grade him on a curve, <laughs> he is certainly more pro-union, I think, than the last three Democratic presidents, okay. than Jimmy Carter, than Bill Clinton and then Barack Obama, uh, none of whom really pushed that hard for labor law reform. Uh, and, you know, I think Biden, uh, partly simply by virtue of kind of where he grew up and, and you know, that sort of thing, has a, a little more union DNA in his bones than, uh, than his Democratic predecessors. And I, I, they've been, you know, also changes in public opinion. I mean, in the latest Gallup poll, unions had uh, an approval rating of 65%. That's higher than it's been uh, in decades. And believe me, 65% of the American people are not Democrats. That reaches out to, you know, some Republicans. Uh, People are beginning to get that the levels of economic inequality that we have are ridiculous. Uh, So it's a combination of, you know, where Biden is at, But where the public is at, uh, and and that matters, and it matters that, you know, millennials and Gen Zers uh, are more progressive on economic issues, perhaps, than any generation in American history. So, you know, it's a combination, as with Roosevelt, it's a combination of the man and the moment, and uh, both of them, I think, are are fairly
0: propitious.
3: We're talking with Harold Meyerson, editor-at-large at the American Prospect magazine. Evan, I think you had a question or a comment?
0: Yeah, Harold. I love the American Prospect. I uh, get it in my inbox daily. I think Bless I <laughs> subscribe, and you have some of the best writers. And uh, you're ahead of the curve oftentimes uh, on news coverage. Uh, my question is, going into the next administration, assuming that Biden's going to win, that the Democrats are going to have the House and Senate, how pro-union are Schumer and, and Nancy Pelosi, and how do you push them harder? Because even if you have Biden there. I think Schumer is a creature of Wall Street, and I think Nancy Pelosi is a, a creature of the Silicon Valley interests, the Paul Pelosi interests, also Wall Street interests. And I'm not really clear how favorable and supportive they are to labor.
7: Well, you know, labor isn't, uh, isn't the Bernie people. Uh, labor is more part of the Democratic establishment. My worry is uh, you know, my worry is it would be an artif- a, a byproduct of democratic success if we start winning Senate seats in states like Georgia. Um, you know uh, can you count on those folks uh, to back really ambitious labor law reform and and uh, uh, and that sort of thing if you 'll remember um, earlier attempts at labor law reform in in the Clinton administration and the Obama administration and the Carter administration, uh, pa- all passed the House and never made it past the, the, the Senate where there was the 60 vote threshold because Southern Democrats uh, who existed at that time in the Senate uh, were opposed. Uh, I, I remember a, a retrospective discussion with uh, Tom Donahue who had been the Secretary-Treasurer of the AFL-CIO under, under Lane Kirkland, a better, better guy than Lane Kirkland, and I do not mean to damn him with faint praise by saying that. Uh, and um, you know, we were talking about what, what could you uh, do different? Uh, and uh, he said, well, let's uh, not make Arkansas a state because the two Democratic senators from Arkansas, in all three iterations of labor law reform efforts had all voted no. Um, So, first of all, you know, nothing's going to pass. It's any decent unless the Democrats get their act together to get rid of the filibuster, uh, which is one more, you know, uh, blockage point for any progressive legislation. Uh, Then, you know, between the Joe Manchins and whatever, uh, yeah, uh, it's going to be uh, a push. But I don't think the main push will be against Schumer and Pelosi. I think the main push. Will be against uh, if they're Democratic senators like Joe Manchin, notwithstanding, you know the heroic Union heritage of West Virginia, which unfortunately is not what West Virginia is today. So, it's my two cents on that.
4: Patrick, hi Harold. This is Patrick Dixon from Labor History Today. Twelve years ago, supposing it plays out as you predicted, twelve years ago uh, the Democrats controlled each chamber and the presidency, and. I remember many similar discussions about how irrelevant the Republican Party seemed to be. We know how the Republican Party responds to progressive legislation. They'll describe it as communism, they'll describe it as socialism, they'll say that we're going to Venezuela. And yet, as absurd as that seems to be uh, in 2010, that convinced some people and it hamstrung uh, the entire remaining six years of the Obama administration. Do, do you think the Democrats have learned lessons from them? And how, how, why should we be sort of confident that it would be different this time?
7: I'm not saying we should be confident, uh, but I do think it'll be different if they get rid of the filibuster. Because look, the Democrats are not going to have 60 senators, no matter how good uh, the election turns out to be. Um, you know, I mean, had there not been the 60 vote threshold, uh, in the Senate, this stuff would have, you know, labor law reform, the previous iterations of which are not as good as what the House under Pelosi has already passed in the PRO Act, and certainly not as good as Biden's labor platform, which has some things that go beyond the PRO Act, chiefly uh, uh, getting, uh, getting, rid of, uh, getting rid of Section 14B of the Taft-Hartley Act, which is right to work. Um, uh, you know, had there not been a 60-vote threshold in the Senate, uh, stuff would have gone through then which, which didn't. So I think that's one grounds uh, for potential optimism if, and it's a very big if, the Democrats can get rid of the filibuster. The, the, the other issue is what I alluded to in the change in public opinion. Uh, you know, uh, in, in 2009, people knew the economy was really screwed up, but the, the notion that it was sort of structurally screwed up uh, wasn't that widely shared. Right now, particularly among young voters who have seen a recovery which largely left them behind after 2008, and then seen the dislocations of the pandemic and how that's intensified economic inequality, um, you know, I, I, I think now uh, there's greater public sentiment uh, for, for lasting change, and I put more stock in that perhaps than uh, than anything else, uh yes, this is not something Wall Street wants, uh, but uh you know uh, uh, I, I think there's going to be more push from our side now than there was in in two thousand and ten than there was in nineteen ninety four than there was in nineteen seventy nine
3: Harold has a question, and I think uh, Evan will give Evan the final one Harold, I know you uh <laughs> Harold. Phillips has a question for Harold Meyerson, just to keep my
2: Harold straight here. Hi, Harold. Um, Harold. Um, yeah, uh, Harold, uh, co-host of Working to Live in Southwest Washington. So, Harold, we've been talking a lot about the Democratic Party and Democratic politics. I think it's important to remember that there are union members and working class people who do identify as Republican. And uh, as you came on, we were having a conversation about how we reach out to those people, how we try to get them to move forward from this moment. What's your take on that? What is the path forward for working class people who identify as Republican to get beyond I hate the term Trumpism, because I think it's overly simplistic, but to get beyond this way of thinking so that they can actually jump into that boat that a rising tide lifts?
7: Well, uh, it's been a long time since a rising tide lifted all boats. Uh, The standard line, which is trite, and I'll say it anyway because it's true, is that our rising tides of the last, you know, four or five decades have lifted the yachts and that's it. So you know, the Democrats need to produce a rising tide that lifts all boats. Otherwise, I don't know why these people would climb aboard. Why would you climb aboard a boat that's just sitting there or worse yet, sinking? Uh, that's the, you know, in theory, that is our value added, that, that we, and I don't, I'm referring specifically to Democrats, but that unions and progressives uh, can produce that kind of rising tide. And that was, you know, that's what under, underpinned the New Deal Coalition uh, for uh, 30 years after World War II. Uh, once that stopped in the mid-1970s, uh, it began to fall apart. It partly began to fall apart because of issues of race and racism. But you know, uh, the, the, really, the failure of Democrats to address what used to be considered the party's base, which was working class America, uh, has been going on for decades, and until you know we prevail to get the Democrats to do that're going you and people like you are going to be asking this question i 'm going to be asking this question. not just people named Harold will be asking this question <laughs> for a very long time so uh, you know assume, if Biden wins, you know we have a clear path ahead of us that we have to uh, you know push, push the party and push the nation uh, onto uh, if if we 're ever going to stop worrying
0: about exactly the sort of thing uh, you asked about
3: and before we let you go, I think Evan had a quick follow up
0: and I know American Prospect has covered this a little bit, but the Federal Reserve is the greatest credit creation in the history of the world, and it 's just proven itself again over the last six months with over six trillion dollars and they started doing overnight repo loans of over a hundred billion dollars a night way back in September, 2019. So there was already problems in the banking system before COVID hit. And what we need is Biden to get on the phone and maybe it's Jerome Powell, or maybe it's someone else who's, who's gonna be the new federal reserve chief and allocate money to the region, regional banks to then go to the States, to then rebuild our infrastructure that can bring in union jobs. And I'm just wondering, if, if Biden's going to be that, that person and, and how we can organize and push Biden to move the Federal Reserve credit, not to Wall Street, not to, to help monetary banking, but to actual credit and federal lending to the states, just like FDR. And the whole country is bankrupt in the 1930s. And they somehow figured out how to pay for it through a Federal Reserve system. We can do it again. We have the blueprint. We just need to do it.
7: I, I don't know if Biden would do that. What I do know uh, is his commitment to substantial public investment generally. Uh, and remember, you know, a lot of what Roosevelt did went through this institution that Hoover created called the Reconstruction Finance uh, uh, Administration. And uh, uh, they provided capital for all kinds of things, uh, public works, public uh, works, uh, you name it, it was kind of it, it wasn 't a bank, but it was uh kind of a a public agency which in some ways functioned as a bank but didn 't really expect repayment uh and uh you know i th- there 's been some uh stuff coming out of the Roosevelt Institute and other think tanks about uh restarting something like that. It was run by a rather conservative banker. But, you know, a lot of the public employment and public works of the 1930s got their funding from that. Um, I don't know if any of the ec- economists around Biden really have focused that much on the Fed. There's one Fed uh, board member, Sarah Bloom Raskin, who would be very good on this. It would be nice to see Biden, uh, when Jerome Powell's term is up, appoint her ahead of the Fed. That would be a partial way of getting to what, Evan, you just, uh, you just talked about. So we shall see.
3: Harold, I really appreciate you being on. I would be, uh, I can't let you go without mentioning that, you know, this network of over 70 labor radio and podcast shows, uh, which is the first ever of this sort of network, would be a great article in the American Prospect. Just, just saying. <laughs> uh,
7: yeah, I think so. I think so. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, Something that we would be happy to come on as well as write about.
3: All right. We appreciate your time, Harold.
7: Thank thanks, Chris. Take care.
3: All right. Take care. Good luck to us all. With the great American care. prospect. And uh Alan will put a link in the uh, Facebook feed there so that everybody can find out. Uh, and uh, Alan put Harold's most recent column. I really like the numbers that Harold put up.
7: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, they could be obsolete in an hour, but uh, uh so you either put them up now or never, okay? All right. <laughs> Okay. Bye,
3: bye. Take care.
5: Most recent column and the one he wrote a few days prior to that are both in the comments.
3: Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, the uh, the numbers he is predicting with the, with the caveat that he was way wrong last time, but uh, he's he's got some pretty impressive numbers he's he's putting up. I think he is uh, predicting. Uh, Florida and Ohio and Pennsylvania all for Biden and it winds up I think Trump winds up with like 120 electoral college votes and and Texas frankly Gene uh, for Harold is, is a bit of a toss-up at the moment uh, so we shall we shall see. It doesn't,
0: it doesn't
5: surprise me I mean it seems like he's been largely branding himself as the more conservative candidate almost like he the way that Biden's branding himself is he's like I'm I'm a friend to Republicans as well, so it doesn't surprise me that he might be, you know, um, flipping some of these uh, swing states, especially like Ohio and Florida. Interesting. All I, right. Well, Harold
3: yeah. Harold uh, really has his uh, as as Evan knows as as a regular. Harold always has his finger, you know, on on the pulse. And I, I always I was, uh, you can you can get both the thirty thousand foot view and the ground level view from Harold at the uh, at the same time, which is which is a real pleasure. So. All right, folks, hope you're thank enjoying Thank you, thank you, I appreciate that. Here. Yeah, I was, I was talking about you, Harold. Yeah, yeah,
2: that, that's a thoughtful nice of you to say.
3: <laughs> um, we're gonna have more. Uh, I'm actually gonna get uh, Damon Silvers from the AFL-CIO. I think we're gonna go, um, I think we have a video next, don't we, Evan? We're, we're probably behind on our videos, if I'm not mistaken. Is that is that what's up next? Do you wanna set this up?
0: Uh, sure. We are going to feature a video by our SMART brethren and uh, going to play it shortly. And it's uh, SMART members stand united.
2: As they do, right, Brother Wah?
4: Champion for the poor and the middle class.
0: He's out looking for our interests as far as protecting our pension,
4: our uh, right to organize. He's not trying to take health care away from the citizens during a pandemic. Joe Biden is for the blue-collar working man.
1: He's going to build back America through union labor. He's about my family protecting
7: us as labor workers. Joe Biden was instrumental with working with the Amtrak shop to keep them open and keep work
0: here. Candidate Biden has supported the two-man crew. He's a major push behind making sure that you have an engineer and a conductor on every train. If you're a railroader
6: and you can retire at 60, don't forget who did it. Joe Biden did it. He understands railroad workers. He understands working people. He knows what we go through. not second class with Joe Biden, you're first class. You may be middle class, you may be low income, you may be this or that, but you're a first class person. He's gonna take care of our wages, benefits, and standards for sheet metal workers. Strong fighter, and he
1: goes across the aisle and gets things done.
6: He's the kind of guy that could bring the country back together again.
3: That's why Joe Biden is the blue collar candidate. Joe Biden is the blue collar candidate.
1: Joe Biden is the blue-collar candidate.
4: I am voting for Joe Biden, the blue-collar candidate. I'm a 21-year railroader, and I believe Joe Biden is the blue-collar candidate.
3: Good stuff, Jeremy. That was, uh, I think... I think that was something that our, uh, our fellow uh, Labor Radio Podcast Network member, uh, Mike Blaine, threw together pretty recently, right?
5: Uh, yeah, just like a day or two ago, I believe. Yep.
3: Very cool. I like it. It's, uh, he got a lot of uh, you know authentic folks. It's got some good music driving it, and it's, uh, it's not that long. So, you know. Kind of a...
5: Yeah, they, they do a good job. Uh, Paul Pimentel is supposed to be joining us later. I believe so
3: seven o'clock. Uh, I heard. Yeah.
5: Yeah. So he can, he can talk more about that. I mean, that's his, uh,
0: that's all his stuff. I, Paul and uh, Michael are partners. So on uh, Jeremy, you, you mentioned a little bit when I interviewed you a while back, I still got to put that uh, interview out. <laughs> mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't know even what a sheet metal worker is. And this is another thing that when we're talking about the next generation of millennials, they have not seen production. They've they are growing up in the post-industrial uh, world that uh, a lot of people take for granted uh, who saw production you know slowly um, shrivel up in this country. And obviously you're at the forefront of being, actually creating things. So this may be something uh, that we may want to pick up after the station identification Chris. I was going
3: to suggest that why don't we go ahead and since we're at the top of the hour do the station identification uh, and then when we come back and and do the uh, quick round of intros Jeremy you can uh, you can take that and run with it. Sure yeah absolutely. All right folks Uh, that's going to do it for this first hour of uh, (laughs) what I'm sure is going to be a long evening but that's okay we're all settled in. Um, I'm a little jealous of it. Uh, we've got bourbon over here. We've got, looked like an IPA over there and up in Vancouver.
2: IPA. Uh, it's a wit.
3: My bad.
2: <laughs>
3: is it is it, is it a, a hard W or is it a V?
2: Ah, it's a Belgian wit beer. There you go.
3: Uh, obviously we're going to have to do a special show just on uh, just on what the uh, labor podcast uh, radio folks are drinking. Uh,
2: oh dude, labor drinks. I mean, that is a great <laughs> podcast idea. Let's just get a bunch of union people talking about what they drink. we go Austin.
3: All right, yeah, yeah. I think that's a whole that's a whole topic right there. Absolutely, and we may get to it tonight before the show is done. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Evan, why don't we go ahead and uh, run our station identification, and uh, we'll be right with you.